Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira, and today I'm going to tell you the story of Pastor Matt Baker. By most accounts, Matt was believed to be a devoted husband and father who'd experienced more tragedy than any one person should bear. Seven years after the death of their toddler, Cassidy, his wife, Carrie, unexpectedly killed herself. Or did she? Matt seemed like such a nice guy, even Carrie's own parents did not suspect any foul play on Matt's part for the death of their daughter. Fortunately, though, enough people saw through Matt's facade and fought for justice for Carrie. After a few years of denial and insufficient evidence, despite the fact that both Hewitt Police Department and the Texas Rangers investigated the case eventually, it was a very unlikely person who came forward and gave investigators what they needed to put this seemingly innocent man in prison. Thank you so much for joining me. You guys know I love to do this podcast. It's just something that I really enjoy. And I thank you so much for listening. If you wouldn't mind, please leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcast. Go check out Storytime Slayer on Facebook. Like it, follow it, share the post, check it out. That's where I post all the pictures and videos that kind of coincide with these cases. Okay, guys, let's go. Carrie and Matt were both devoted Baptists from a devoted Southern Baptist families. Like most Southern women, Carrie was tactful, beautiful, kind, loving, very long-winded, but also very bubbly. She also didn't take shit from people either. She would voice her grievances politely. This is a trait that she got from her mother, Linda. Carrie was either native to Waco or she'd lived there most of her life. Matt's family was native to Kerrville, Texas, and it is said that they attended church three times a week. From 1974, which Matt would have been about two to three years old, until 1981, Matt's parents fostered dozens of children. On top of their two biological children, they typically have 10 foster kids at a time. So it's estimated that they probably fostered near 50 kids. Holy shit. So fast forward to 1990, Matt moved from Kerrville, Texas to Waco so that he could attend Baylor College. Baylor College is a Baptist university. Perfect. So he was going to go to school for church recreation. I cannot believe that's a thing, but it is. Although Carrie did intend to do her schooling at Texas Tech, within her first year, she found the college experience to be all too tempting and decided that she needed to move back home so she could like get her life straight, get her focuses in order and finish school. She was studying to be a school teacher, actually. It was in the spring of 1994 when the stars would align and the two would meet. Carrie had taken a lifeguard position at the First Baptist Church and Matt had started working there. Now, I don't know what his job was there at the time, but they were totally smitten with each other immediately. Carrie thought Matt was kind and he was so active in the church, like the perfect church guy she was looking for. The thing about being plugged into the church, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast, is that like people will devout everything to their church. That's where all their friends are, their extracurricular activities, who they go to like the movies with, who they meet for lunch. They attend services typically two a week. And they also have like women's book clubs, women's retreats, men's book clubs. It's a total lifestyle. And this is how it was for Carrie and Matt. So naturally they were both attracted to that trait in each other. Matt also said that he loved how upbeat and family oriented Carrie was. 
it was an extremely short romance before the couple got married. Like, they only dated three months, y'all. So when they got married, Matt was 23 and Carrie was 20. So here is what Carrie did not know when she married Matt. Between 1991 and 1993, there are three known and significant allegations against Matt for being sexually inappropriate. The first one was a college co-ed of Matt's, and they were volunteering in the athletic program together. He told her to go clean the urinals in the guest locker room and actually followed her in there. So the plan was, she was like, okay, I'm going to clean the stalls, like the toilets and the urinals, and you clean the rest of the bathroom. Well, when she was bent down cleaning a toilet, Matt had actually snuck up behind her, grabbed her arms, held them behind her, and tried to kiss her. She immediately rejected his advances, but he ignored her and tried kissing on her more. She actually tried to get away from him, but he caught her and restrained her arms with just one of his arms while he touched her body with his other hand. Ugh. The second was in 1993 when him and Carrie had first started dating. A teenage girl at First Baptist Church reported Matt for repeatedly asking her to have sex with him. The third one was also in 1993 or the very beginning of 94. A First Baptist custodian said that Matt was actually asking her to have sex with him too. Ew, 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 ew. I don't mind an eager man in the room, but I have a disdain for perverts. Like it's not okay. If you are having perversions or know someone with perversions, you need to tell somebody, um, get them an accountability partner and seek counseling immediately. Thanks for coming to my TED talk. So the co-ed Carrie never knew about, but of course the rumors of the first Baptist accusations made their way to Carrie. And she was totally appalled because there was no way her man was a pervert. Those women were clearly lying. That was her take. And she would adamantly defend and stand by Matt. In fact, she thought it was an attack on her husband. And that would be because he was like, of course, a man of God and wanting to preach the word of God. So she anticipated a devilish thing against him. It was very sad. A lot of women do this. Um, she didn't know. So Carrie wouldn't just snuff off the rumors, though. She would actually vocalize Matt's innocence for him to everybody while he just sat back silently. And because Carrie didn't believe the rumors, like she genuinely didn't believe them, she was uber convincing. Even Carrie's parents believed that Matt was innocent. Sometime in the late spring or summer of 1995, Carrie became pregnant with her first child and that September, Matt resigned from the church that had all the accusations against him. And he went to go work at the family Y, which I think is the YMCA. Six months into his new job, right before he gave birth, Matt was in his office. And he actually asked one of the young student workers who was just volunteering over the summer before she went back to college that they go to the receipt room and work on the receipts. I mean, the recreation room. And that is when Matt came up behind her and was actually like fond trying to touch her boobs and stuff. So she immediately rejected his advances and he went ahead and just grabbed her hand and tried to force it into his pants. Like, come on, girl, we're doing this. And she was screaming and pushing him away. And he literally was like, I just want to fuck you. Like, I just want to fuck you right here, right now. And luckily the phone rang and he was like, oh, man, they must be looking for us. Let's go. And he would act like nothing happened. Now, unfortunately, 
she did not report this because she was literally going back to college the next day and was like, I'm just, I'm just rolling out. April 22nd, Carrie gave birth to a healthy baby girl named Kenzie Baker. Everyone does maintain that Matt was a very involved and hands-on father. He really enjoyed it. He enjoyed taking care of his kids and he wanted to do a lot of the primary caregiving when he was around. Meanwhile, Matt would be looking for a new job close to one year after working at the Y. This is because he was fired on June 14, 1996 for sexual misconduct allegations. Three teenage girls reported him for asking repeatedly to have sex with him and making sexual advances. Now, Matt's excuse to Carrie was that he was trying to mentor these three high school girls about obtaining from sex, and they obviously misunderstood what he was saying. Of course, Carrie believed him. She had also just had a baby. She was still in college to become a teacher while Matt was in college for his master's. So, like, I get it. I get it. It is very easy to convince yourself of something that you don't want to see. So the next job for Matt is pastoring at Pecan Grove Baptist Church, but he only worked there a year also. In that year, Carrie gave birth to their second daughter, Cassidy, in November of 1997. Also in that year, a teenage girl said that Matt actually harassed her in a parking lot. He saw her and he walked alongside her. Then he asked her if she'd been kissed by a boy, grabbed her butt, and planted a kiss on her. Now, that accusation got Carrie, like, really fired up. She even went to the girl's house and adamantly defended Matt to the family. And everybody else, of course. 1998, though, would prove to be an incredibly hard year for the Baker family. See, Matt switched jobs again and pastored for Williams Creek Baptist. And then it was Cassidy's first birthday when the little girl came down with something. She actually had flu-like symptoms and would not quit throwing up. A couple weeks and a couple wrong flu diagnosis later, doctors actually found that the baby girl had a brain tumor on the stem of her brain. And it was a really bad one. It needed removal immediately. So here's the thing. This is not an easy operation, nor an easy operation to recover from. Cassidy had to stay in the PICU and recovery took close to four months. Meanwhile, the entire time, it looked like she may not even survive. She had to have a trach put in and the little girl struggled with her oxygen. So she had to be on oxygen. She had to have a feeding tube. Not an easy recovery. Oh, by the way, in the middle of all of this... One of Carrie's cousins came to visit baby Cassidy and she brought her coworker with her. Only two people could see the little girl at a time because she had a really compromised immune system. So the friend of Carrie's cousin stayed in the waiting room while her friend and Carrie visited with Cassidy. Matt began flirting with the woman and offered to show her the hospital room that him and his wife were using. He told the woman they had at least 15 minutes till the women would come out from visiting the baby. Of course, this lady rejected his advances. That is so gross and that is so low. Because Cassidy was in such a fragile state, Carrie's cousin and aunt decided it wasn't an appropriate time to tell Carrie about Matt's advances on the girl and they just kind of let sleeping dogs lie, which I get it. I get it. The good news, though, is that baby Cassidy did survive and she got to go home in February. Now, she still had to go to the hospital for chemotherapy treatments, and she needed a feeding tube and a trach and oxygen still, but she made it out of the danger zone, and they thought she could, she could actually survive and have a life. But March 21st, 1998, that all changed. 
Matt had woken up at midnight for no reason and thought to go check on the kids. Everyone was fine. Everyone was asleep. But nine minutes later, he got up again just to double check. And when he went to Cassidy's room, she wasn't breathing. He alerted Carrie and told her to call 911, but not to come in the room because she wouldn't want to see her baby like that. Cassidy was rushed to the hospital via ambulance, but did not survive. Carrie was crushed. I say Carrie was crushed because Matt didn't seem to grieve much at all. In fact, he preached at the next church service and did the whole, I'm okay because the Lord is my strength, blah, 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 blah. Carrie grieved really hard though. She longed for her baby. She even started seeing a grief counselor, which helped so much. When Carrie called Cassidy's oncologist, he was shocked and he said that he didn't understand how Cassidy could have died and was calling CPS on them. Now CPS did come, but they never returned. It was kind of weird though. And Carrie struggled for years with the loss of the little girl. She'd sometimes journal things like that. She wanted to be with Cassidy and she longed to hold her and how depressed she was. But eventually she did come to peace with the loss. It did always bother her, though, that she didn't understand why Cassidy died and that she hadn't gone into the room. Ay, ay, ay. As if life wasn't hard enough, the congregation really started to have a disdain for Matt. They thought he was overconfident and they didn't like his preaching style. Plus, despite what the church members wanted, he would do what he wanted to do. One time he cut the hours of an employee and everyone at the church was really upset about it, but he didn't care. He just did shit that irritated the members. Carrie got pregnant at the end of 1999 and she actually walked across the stage to get her diploma eight months pregnant. Go mama. Grace was born July 18th, 2000. Another girl. Another girl. She's a girl mom. So don't worry. Matt did not keep his job past his typical time. That would be crazy. Matt changed jobs and he was going to pastor a small Baptist church in Riesel. Something that would come to play later was that Carrie developed a sleeping problem since the loss of Cassidy. Uh, she went to the doctor and got a prescription for Ambien, but she did not like how hard the drug made her sleep, and so she didn't refill the prescription. She settled for an over-the-counter sleep aid called Unisum, which was just more of like a drowsiness enhancer. One day in the summer of 2001, Carrie had found that her bank account was overdrawn, and when she looked at the account, she saw that there was charges for online porn and a sex hotline. Matt was adamant that his debit card was stolen and the perpetrators had to have used it to buy porn. And that's it. And Carrie believed him. So for whatever reason, though, Matt had to change jobs again. So Matt's basically only averaged one year long stints at each job he goes to. He then became the pastor of North Lake Baptist in Dallas, and the family really liked Dallas. They fit in, things were really good, but then the congregation began to dislike Matt. You see, Matt and Carrie helped grow the youth and get younger church members involved, but most of the old school church members didn't like that Matt was more of a motivational preacher than a Bible preacher. I don't know if you ever heard Joel Olstein, but like he didn't really preach from the Bible. He just preached like, life lessons and like tied it to Christianity. Anyway, on top of them not liking that about Matt, he was also a habitual liar. So to get rid of Matt, the church actually decided to deduct his annual salary by like $5,000, which forced him to resign. 
Something Linda would be thankful for later was that due to the financial strain, Carrie and Matt needed to be on the family's phone plan. And of course, Linda said yes. So moving forward, Matt's next job was actually not at a church, but he was the chaplain at a Waco Center for Youth in 2005. It is going to be referred to as WCY. That is where he worked. And this was a place for teenagers between 13 and 17 that had emotional problems or behavioral issues. These teenagers did not present severe issues like suicide, psychotic tendencies, or violent behaviors. The Baker family settled and Carrie got a job teaching and so everything just seemed fine. Matt's work did find him to be a liar too though. Um, he'd say like, oh, I'm going to go on the other side of the building and do yada yada. But in actuality, they could literally see him out the window walking to his car and leaving work early. <laughs> they also didn't like that he got his sermon topics and ideas from the internet. And despite the fact that there is a strict no outsiders allowed on the premises rule, he would invite members of other churches to come to his services at, at WYC. The major red flag, though, was one of his co-workers was in his office just like venting and bitching. And he directly asked her, like straight up, his response to her complaining was, you want to fuck? Of course, she declined and ran out of his office. So Matt maintained his job at WCY and he began pastoring also at Crossroad Church October 2005. Little did Matt know, while he was at Crossroad Church, he would come to a crossroad of his own. This happened when he'd met Vanessa Bull around the same time he came to Crossroad Church. She did too. And y'all know where this is going. So a couple years after the fact, Vanessa would actually outline the entire affair she had with Matt and how it started. But when Vanessa came to Crossroad, she was in the midst or near the end of a divorce. Her marriage was a very short one. And long story short, she had asked for spousal and child support in their divorce, but a DNA test actually proved that he was not the father of her infant daughter Lily so they're out on their own living at Vanessa's parents I don't know why they got divorced but I'm just gonna say I wouldn't be surprised if it had to do with Vanessa being a cunt anyway so Matt began subtly flirting with Vanessa immediately and one day he called the Bulls home I think this was at the end of December to speak with Vanessa's father see she was living at her parents house However, her father wasn't home, and so he just started talking to Vanessa. Soon, Matt and Vanessa were talking on the phone at least one to two times a day. Back at the ranch, things between Matt and Carrie were getting really tense. Carrie and Matt would email each other a lot, and I assume this is because in the old days, you could only talk on the phone free past 7 p.m., and you had limited texting that where you had to pay per text once you exceeded whatever your cell phone plan was. <sighs> Those were the dark ages, guys. So the couple emailed regularly. At the start of 2006, you could see a significant change in their attitudes with each other. Carrie was slowly approaching the anniversary of Cassidy's death, which would typically make her reclusive, depressed. Maybe Matt would kind of get upset that she was shutting down a bit. But unlike years before, she'd been handling it especially well. She was even thinking about helping other people grieving the loss of their child because she found peace and she wanted to share that. But Carrie was now struggling with something else. She was struggling with a change in Matt. She felt a serious disconnect. Matt was more distant than ever. Um, remember, this is a man that goes with Carrie everywhere. He would literally go with Carrie everywhere, even to go get her hair done at the salon. People were weirded out by how much Matt hung out with Carrie. 
Plus, he had an insatiable sex drive that seemed to completely dry up at the beginning of 2006. Around February and up to her death, Carrie was pleading and begging Matt to tell her what was going on. He would then always turn around on her and say he wasn't being distanced. Carrie was pushing him away. Duh. And Carrie would try to spice things up romantically, but Matt always seemed more put out by her attempt to be sexy than interested. Things got worse. In March, Carrie wrote in her Bible diary, Galatians 6, which states, Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And then she wrote, Lord, I am asking you to protect me from harm. I'm not sure what's going on with Matt, but let me find peace with him. Whew. Meanwhile, Matt's telephone emotional affair had heated up to a full-on sexual affair in February. According to Vanessa, when she spoke to Matt on the phone, the reason they spoke so frequently is because he'd offered counseling in lieu of her divorce. Counseling with your pastor is not very uncommon. A couple weeks into this phone counseling, he'd offered for her to come over to his house on Fridays while Carrie was at work and the girls were at school. Now, of course, Vanessa thought, oh man, this is just for counseling. So she'd drive over to his house and park in his garage. From the first day she went over there, her and Matt would have sex in his and Carrie's bed, which is low. Vanessa said that Matt was extremely manipulative and he'd always talked about how much he hated Carrie. And even though to her, Carrie seemed like a good wife and mom was always happy and doting on her children, Matt explained that was a facade. He said Carrie would come home, cry, lock herself in her room and do nothing with the kids or domestic duties. And apparently Vanessa believed him. So this narrative continued until eventually Matt confided to Vanessa that he wanted to kill Carrie. He couldn't get a divorce because that was frowned upon. He's a pastor. And murder makes much more sense for a pastor. Duh. Vanessa did not try to stop him at all. They brainstormed and Matt had thought about poisoning a shake, which he actually did attempt, but Carrie didn't drink it. He brainstormed cutting her brakes, making it look like a suicide by hanging her, all sorts of shit. How do you have an affair with your pastor, sleep with him in his wife's bed, in between conversations of how he's going to kill his wife and then sleep at night? Like, mind you, Vanessa is still seeing Carrie at church and stuff at least twice a week this entire time. Ugh. Okay, so now we're going to go to the final week of Carrie's life, the first week of April. It was Monday night on April 3rd in 2007 that Carrie found crushed up pills in a toothpick jar inside of Matt's briefcase. She confronted him about it and he said it was probably from a WCY kid. See, they didn't always like taking their medications and would hurry up and dump them places, he said. She was super suspicious because like the pills weren't whole, they weren't chewed up, they weren't broken in half they were completely crushed up in a toothpick jar the following day carrie decided to make an appointment with her old grief counselor in the session by the way she hadn't seen her grief counselor in like six years but in the session she confided that one she'd felt totally at peace with cassie cassidy's passing finally and was ready to help other grieving parents and two she had an inkling that maybe matt was having an affair and planned to kill her she explained the lack of sex, the disconnect, and the crushed up pills that she found in his briefcase. But just as soon as Carrie outlined it all, she kind of retracted it and 
made it seem like, okay, that's an exaggeration. There's no way my husband's going to kill me. We're just going through a difficult time. I really wish Carrie had followed her gut. So that Friday, April 7th, was a really big day for Carrie. She had an interview for a teaching position that she really wanted. And according to everyone, Carrie spoke to that afternoon. She was in high spirits. After the interview, she made some phone calls and said it went really well. And she was really optimistic about it. But then things changed. Around 5.15, Carrie and Matt took their daughter to swim lessons. The other parents said that you could cut the tension between Matt and Carrie with a knife. What happened next can only be relayed by Matt. He said that after swim, they went to a pizza place, but the line was too long. So instead, they swung through a McDonald's drive through Carrie wasn't really feeling well. Um, she had maybe two fries and threw that up. Then when they got home, she threw up again. He said she got in bed and had two wine coolers. Around 11.15 at night, she asked Matt to go fill up her car with gas and rent a movie. He did, and when he got home, it was nearly midnight. He said that their bedroom door was locked, and he thought Carrie was trying to do something sexy. He opened the door with a screwdriver where he found his wife laying naked on their bed, unresponsive with a note. He then called 911. When EMT and police arrived, Matt re accounted for what had happened he said that when he walked into the room he found his wife naked on the bed and unresponsive he then called 911 and quickly got her dressed then he pulled her lifeless body off of his bed and onto the ground to perform cpr until help got there now once they got there and they spoke to police he was pretty emotionless going through the account of what happened when officers looked around they saw that there was an empty bottle of unisom on the nightstand two empty wine coolers, and a suicide note. The note read, and I quote, I am so sorry. I am so tired. I just want to sleep for a while. Please forgive me. Tell Kinsey and Grace that I love them very much. Tell my mom and dad I love them. I love you, Matt. I'm very sorry for the past few weeks. I want to give Cassidy a hug. I need to feel her again. Please continue to be a great dad to our little girls. Love them every day for me. I am so sorry. I love you. Carrie. By the way, everything is typed, even her name. That's just a lazy murderer, y'all. Police only really spoke to Matt, and when they called it in to a judge, the judge saw no reason for an autopsy. Pill bottle on the table and a suicide note. Case closed. Not everybody has the entire piece of the puzzle about Matt. Different people know little tidbits of information, not the full thing. When news of this traveled, Carrie's parents genuinely believed it was a suicide. There was very few suspicions that Matt had anything to do with this. But Carrie's grief counselor was a good friend of Carrie's aunt. So she called her and confided what Carrie told her that Tuesday about the pills and Matt. Carrie's aunt and cousin were also suspicious thinking about that along with all the sexual advance allegations against Matt and just like what he was like in general. Plus, Matt started spreading false information. He was saying that Carrie was really depressed, and they didn't remember it like that at all. However, the people who were suspicious didn't say much because they figured police were going to investigate, and they'd hold off till police gathered more intel. Obviously, it's not a good time with Carrie's parents and Matt grieving to go in with all these accusations, right? What they didn't know was there was no investigation. Carrie's funeral was two days later. Matt insisted on it. 
and her death certificate was ruled death by overdose of Unisum and checked off as a suicide. Again, her friends and family were immediately privy to this knowledge. As time passed, Matt and Vanessa continued their romance. They did not do a cooling off period. In fact, less than two weeks after Carrie's death, Matt and Vanessa pulled up to pick his oldest daughter up for her birthday in a limo and Vanessa was with him and people were appalled to see this. She also stayed the night to help with her daughter's sleepover. She was then seen in the car always with Matt and Lily when they went through the school pickup line. Everybody knew what was going on. Then Matt began minimizing the girl's contact with Carrie's parents like completely. So a month goes by and Carrie's counselor, aunt, and cousin decide, you know, it's time that we have a sit down with Linda about the possibility that Matt killed Carrie. From the start, Linda was immediately rejecting to this information. Like she would not hear anything of the sort. She was in total denial. But when Matt wouldn't let her see the kids, she thought, you know what? That motherfucker's on my cell phone plan. I'm just going to cut his phone off. But first, I'm going to actually get his phone records and check him out. While Carrie's family is adamantly looking into her death and Matt he is frolicking around town with Vanessa so they're seen at a jewelry store shopping for an engagement ring buying new cell phones and even searching for houses this is when Linda amped up her investigation first she asked Matt about the crushed pills Carrie found and he told her that they were from the WCY kids and that he'd actually reported it so Linda called WCY and found out that was a lie at Carrie's home, all the pictures of her were gone, as well as all of her personal belongings, which was super suspicious. Matt was also saying to everyone that Carrie was depressed and her job interview went really bad, and Linda firsthand knew both of those were lies. Then the phone records came in. So what Linda did was she actually had her sister and niece call some of the numbers that he frequented, and they found out the number that he frequented the most was the residence of Vanessa Bowles, and he'd been calling her for months prior to Carrie's death. She also saw that between April 16th and 26th, Matt called Carrie's phone 181 times. Now, mind you, this is after Carrie died, and come to find out it was because he gave Vanessa Carrie's phone. Next, Linda researched Unisum and found that it takes a significant amount, like more than one bottle, to overdose on Unisum. Plus, it was incredibly uncommon. The reports of overdose said that it was not a quick process. It was a long process. And remember, Carrie was already cold when EMT arrived, so she had to have died relatively quickly. Things are not looking good for Matt. So Linda takes all this information and she continues fighting and pushing to get her daughter's death investigated. She actually did get the Hewitt Police Department and the Texas Rangers to look into it. 52 days after Carrie died, Matt was finally brought in for questioning and he lied and denied, lied and denied. Unfortunately, all the evidence was circumstantial. They even got Carrie exhumed, but due to the embalming, it was impossible to do a full toxicology report. All they found, though, was traces of Ambien. Now, remember, Carrie didn't like Ambien, and she no longer had a prescription for it. Here is everything that the investigators had. Carrie was already cold and settling into the different stages of death when EMT arrived. She had slight bruising on her nose and mouth. A search of Matt's electronics showed he was looking at places to buy prescription drugs online, and he even had Ambien in a cart from an online pharmaceutical company in Canada. 
He was also searching weird things like suicide, death by sleeping pill, things like that. Next, Matt never showed any emotion about Carrie's death. He only took two days off from work at WCY and basically was telling people that Carrie's depressed, their marriage was trash anyway, and the Lord is his strength. Okay. Lastly, it was obvious that he was in an entanglement with Vanessa and likely was having an affair before Carrie died. They question Vanessa and all she does is lie and deny, lie and deny. The case grows cold for about a year or so. But with the investigation at a standstill, Carrie's parents are like, fuck it. They file in an unrightful death lawsuit, and this is a way to indict Matt and Vanessa under oath to question them. Basically, Matt and Vanessa, though, said very little that could incriminate them, and they, they, I think they pled the fifth for a lot of things. They maintained, although they did date briefly, it was after Carrie's death, and they split up as soon as July 2006. They maintained there was no affair. However, as time went on, Vanessa eventually cracked and said that she would spill the tea if she could get immunity. They worked out an immunity deal with her, and it would be null and void if Vanessa was proven to actively participate in the murder. She had always maintained that she didn't. She just knew he was going to do it and knew after that he did do it. To me, that's like really fucked up, but. Anyway, he told her that he was going to, and days following her death, he actually had Vanessa come to his house and told her everything. As I mentioned before, the couple were only together until July of that year. That means the entire entanglement was only like six months long, but it would be two years before Vanessa actually spilled the tea. With her immunity deal intact, she said that Matt bought these sex-enhancing pills, Carrie was so desperate to do anything to save her marriage that she willingly took them. But what Matt did was he emptied Carrie's capsule beforehand and filled it with Ambien. A lot of Ambien. He then cuffed Carrie to the bed for foreplay and was, you know, kissing her all over and doing stuff until she passed out from the drugs. Then he uncuffed her from the bed and smothered her with a pillow until she quit breathing. Next, he typed and printed the suicide letter, rubbed Carrie's fingerprints all over it, and staged the crime with an empty bottle of Unisom and two wine coolers, along with the note. He did like he said, he went to the gas station and movie rental store. Evidence shows he did leave the store at 11.50. Once he got home, he immediately dialed 911 a little bit after midnight. With her testimony and all the circumstantial evidence, it would be enough to charge Matt Baker. Matt was charged and found guilty for the murder of his wife, Carrie, and sentenced to 65 years when his girlfriend, Vanessa, testified against him. His daughters were originally living with the Baker family with Matt's parents, but Carrie's parents were later granted custody of them. The relationship was not easy at first because Matt had completely poisoned the girls against Carrie and her family, but they managed Both girls grew up to be beautiful, smart women and would know how instead that their mom loved them very much. It has always been rumored and thought that Matt killed baby Cassidy, but of course there's no way to tell now. It's strange though that Carrie died close to the anniversary of Cassidy around the same time at night and possibly the same way, smothered by a pillow in her sleep. For those interested, I'm going to play the 911 call of Matt Baker And a little bit of Vanessa Bull's testimony so you can kind of hear her and get a feel for her. But on that note, I'm going to go ahead and say bye. I will talk to you guys next week.
started going on Fridays, did you then go essentially every Friday? It wasn't every one. I think there was one that was a spring break in March that I did not go on, but it was it was about two to three times, yes. All right. And during this time, where was Carrie? Carrie was at work. Where were the Baker girls? They were at school. All right. And this was, this was arranged. You knew that. Um... Now I do. I didn't at the time. Um, 
at what point did you begin to start parking in the garage when you went to the Baker house on Fridays? I think it was the second time I was over there. The first time I think I parked out on the street, I think it was the second time that I parked in the garage. Did you find that unusual or? I, I didn't really find that unusual. That was the point in my life I wasn't thinking straight. So are you trying to make excuses now for the decisions that you made then? Absolutely not. I own everything. Um, what happened then in, in early March as you and Matt started to spend Fridays at the Baker home? Um, it started off, you know, um, talking about my divorce, doing what I thought, sorry, doing what I thought I was there for, for the counseling, things of that nature. And he started, you know, quoting scripture, things like that, making me believe that God could pull you through anything. And once again, he touched on the Cassidy story about his deceased daughter and about how he touched on that all the time and about how someone has been through such grief as he had losing a child that I could definitely get through this. And so it just started like that. And then he asked if he could hold my hands to pray. And he did. Then afterwards, he started to kiss me. All right. Did you kiss him back? No, I was more surprised and shocked than the very anything. first time. Yeah. All right, and this would have been in what early March? Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. Of two thousand six. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, where did things progress from there? Um, that day. That day. Uh -huh. um, then he just took my hand and led me to the bedroom. All right, and so y'all had sex in his and Carrie's bedroom. Yes. All right, that very first time. All right.